This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Mewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Open Throat. Some of you may have heard about this novel, and some of you definitely have not heard about this novel. And I am laughing, and you are going to hear all of the reasons why, mostly because I'm also making fun of myself for not immediately, immediately saying to everyone in the world, oh yeah, this one. And uh, I'm going to explain that comment in a second. Henry Hoke is the author of this dynamic, amazing, miraculous, tiny novella that is so voice-driven. And if you are the kind of person who needs a narrator that you can hold on to and just follow, this is the book for you. And it's tiny, and we are going to get into the language and the structure. We are staying away from spoilers. And Jackson Howard is the editor for Open Throat. He is Jackson, what is your title at McD? I'm an editor. Okay. I didn't know if you had a fancy, you know, I, I'm not good with titles. Anyway, we're going to talk about this wild little novella. And I guess technically I'm supposed to call it a novel, but it feels like a novella to me. So Henry, novel, novella, do you care? It's a book. It's a book. Yes, it is a book. <laughs> it is and a book. And it's got a story. Yeah, so that's okay. all I care about. <laughs> all right. It's Please beautiful. Have this at book, it. Though. It is beautiful, this book. It, the voice is, I left a note, actually, a I'm the queen of post-its. And I stuck a post-it on the front and dropped a copy off with someone I work with. And all I said was, it's the voice. And then I walked away. (laughs) Jackson, why'd you buy this book? Henry wrote it, but you brought it into the world. And we're going to start there for a second. Well, Henry's agent sent me an email and the subject line was queer mountain lion, question mark. (laughs) You know, I'm from LA and this Novel is set uh, under the Hollywood sign. Mount Lion's queer. Anyway, everything about this book, it was almost as if it was like an AI pitch bot sent it specifically to me. I just couldn't have found a more me sounding book. I read it in one sitting, which I don't think I've done with any other book on my list. It's a short book, as in a saying, it's voice driven. You kind of get it from the jump, and it's a it's a premise that has the potential to become saccharine or you know, kind of corny. And it just, it never tips over to there. And I, I kept waiting as I was reading and enjoying this book to see if this was going to become, no pun intended, you know, hokey. And, oh, <laughs> and it, yes. sorry, I ha- but that's, that was the only word I have for that. So I, I just needed to buy it right away. Okay. I was like, this pitch sells itself. And I basically have been using that email subject line to the book ever since. Henry, you're not an Angelino. I know you lived in Los mm. Angeles for a little bit, but. It's true. Yeah, I spent 11 years in Los Angeles. Yeah, and in a way, you know, my big cat is not exactly Angelino either. Right. You know? It, I know. It I crosses know. the freeways and has this slightly outsider <laughs> perspective on everything. And I think yeah. that was key to finding the, the perspective that the voice would, you know, play with. I felt both enamored and confused and overwhelmed by the city pretty much the whole time. Yeah. I think Angelinas, we still sometimes feel that way as well. Not always, <laughs> but sometimes. But did you start writing it when you came back to the East Coast? I mean, where does this fit into... You had to leave LA to write this book, right? Like, this is not... Absolutely. This feels like you need the distance. It feels like you need the space. It feels like you need to remember how it felt for you to land in LA. That was very very true, yeah, of of how how it came about was I had, yeah, I had come back to New York and it was you know, right before the pandemic. Yeah. So New York was not as dynamic as I was anticipating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it was a whole different thing. Just really trying to process that 
time I spent in Los Angeles, which which felt perpetual and dreamy and strange and wild and full of, you know, pseudo-apocalyptic experiences and a lot of hunger, <laughs> hunger for various things and a lot of sort of, yeah, disconnect from from other people for various reasons. I knew I wanted a vehicle, a voice to process that time that wasn't just like a third person narrative or, or summing up of a scene or of an era, like all those things just didn't didn't jump out at me. And I was like, but but I had this urge probably to write about that time. It really was. Yeah. When I when I I heard a song by Nick Cave that mentions the cougar in the Hollywood Hills. And I was like, right, P22, my old friend, you know, my old friend that I would always check up on and was just up just up the hill from me in this house for a while under a house. And I thought, well, that's the voice. And it was the most organic writing experience I've ever had. I just every morning I was just ready and and excited to write it. It didn't take any I don't know. I didn't have to distance myself from it. I just went right into that big cat feeling and it flowed from there. Yeah, it really when you say flow, that's exactly the word. I mean, your prose just swings really hard on the page. There might be some people who are like, well, this is a little bit like poetry and it kind of sort of it is very much its own form, though. Right. And you are playing with language in ways I was so impressed as I was reading. And the way you play with the idea of whether or not our narrator knows what language is and what it can do. And clearly, I keep calling him our narrator because I bought in entirely to having a novel narrated by a mountain lion. And, you know, Jackson knows this, his publisher knows this. I, animal narrators and I are just not usually what people think of when they're thinking, when they're sending me something and pitching me something. I'm like, hmm. And yeah, I say that. Yeah, I me loved, neither. <laughs> I, I loved Stuart Little as a kid, right? But I think I got to Narnia and I was like, Aslan, really? Like, the, um, this is a little heavy handed. Like, mm, I'm good. Thanks. This works. The outsider structure works. The whole hunger metaphor, like everything you do here works. And I'm raising an eyebrow only because it's a little bit of that. How'd you do it? And I really do want to talk about craft because it could have, as Jackson was just saying a second ago, it could have veered off in territory that I don't think any of us would have loved as much as we love this book now. So let's talk about process for a second because we've set up sort of the idea of the thing, right? But you do some stuff in this book, man. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it's really funny to talk about. My process was really just concentrated. I pretty much just started writing from that inspiration moment. I was pitching my memoir that has, you know, came out last year um, and that I wrote for Bloomsbury for their object lesson series. And so I was sort of waiting to, you know, that we were talking a little bit and I was sort of conceiving of some ideas there. But I knew that would be very like research heavy going back into my, you know, memories and my experiences as a youth um, in my hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia, which is that's where I'm, you know, that's where I grew up and all that that was. So I sort of had this like, book that I was gonna cook when they signed me to, to write it but I wasn't ready for that yet so I was like okay but I would love to write something <laughs> I was just like I, I just sort of need to get something out and I didn't I'm not really like a short form writer I'm, I'm a very short form writer in my mm-hmm. in my approach yeah. but I, I don't think too much about like short stories or, or like just putting little morsels out unless I'm sort of writing nonfiction for for magazines or whatever so I was really like okay well this is gonna be a book no matter what form that takes I'm like it has to be a book because I thought this voice is going to want that kind of space because if it was short, I think, you know, I mean, it is short, but if it was, 
intended to be a short story or anthologized or a poem or a series of them. I was just like, this isn't, I want to give this lion that, really honor it, honor the voice to give it a lot of space to spread out and to go on a real journey and sort of have a have a, a large scale adventure in a way, you know, oh, no spoilers, does. but, oh, but yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, I feel like that would be the tribute to the real lion. And then also just to how much I wanted to express about Los Angeles, but the, really the form was, I wrote it in sequence, but what would come to me would be these little, like you say, li- like lines and linguistic moments and play and just some 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 of the lines that, you know, I still love to read, even though, you know, I wrote it and I'm, I'm not sick of it because it's a fun book, which is great. That's also part of why I did it was I didn't want to get sick of my work. And I was like, well, let's write something that I'm going to enjoy, <laughs> that was, which is not always the case. But here I thought, yeah, every day I, I would write, maybe I would I would hit that first line that came to me and I would just go from there to the next one that I knew, the next moment that was linguistic. It wasn't so much plot points I was thinking about as like the way that Hecate is, you know, what I call my lion, that that Hecate would process and then make linguistic speak that line, you know, that moment, right? So I was like, okay, like like something like I'm old because I'm not dead. I'm like, okay, well, I, I want to get to that expression. And it's going to be this observation of an older, you know, an old couple of humans. And, and like, how Hecate thinks about age. So I was like, okay, well, that'll just be an observation. But then other moments that were like larger, like plot point moments, like something like fire is the only future or something, that's going to be a a dramatic um, moment, a a turning point in the narrative that will get me to that line. So sort of writing toward the line, which is just sort of how things come to me. I I have these little fragments I'll, you know, journal on my phone or whatever. Yeah. Like a poet, I guess, but then I'm building them into these larger structures. You're not the first writer to have told me they were drafting their book. Um, Chen Julie Wong actually drafted Beautiful Country on her phone. And she drafted yeah. her memoir on her phone as she was commuting to a job that, you know, ultimately was not the job she stayed in. But, you know, yeah. you hear these stories and I'm like, we walk around with supercomputers in our pockets. This is pretty great. But Jackson, I want to talk to you about editing because, I mean, you don't want to take away what Henry's done, but the reality is everyone needs an editor. Like every, I don't care who you are. You need someone to look at the thing and make sure that you haven't just decided to embrace all of the things, you know, we all get attached to, I, I, you know, certainly get attached to pieces of copy and my editor will come to me and be like, you can't have that. You just can't have that. It's just goofy. And how do you react to being well, I, I Honestly, I let her take it out because I mean, I know there's always something in there where it's like, mm, yeah, okay. That sounded great. The first time I said, mm, yeah, let's let, just let it go. But you don't want to lose the shape of the thing, right? You don't want to lose the form. You don't want to lose the narrative momentum because that's one of the things, Henry, you do mm-hmm. in this book. It never stops. And it's wild to me how much, okay, and now I, it's my turn to apologize for how much ground you cover in this tiny, tiny book, right? With with Hecate walking around doing Hecate's things and Hecate has some adventures that we're not going to get too deep into, but you cover a lot of territory and and not all of it is Griffith Park. <laughs> <laughs> true yeah some surprises yeah jackson talk about editing this thing because again you don't you don't want to mess it up but you do want to put a little mm-hmm. edge to it right i mean you know uh as an editor when i sign a book up whether it's fiction or nonfiction, i have to make sure that not only that the author and i are on the same page for my vision but that already there's the potential of trust not that it's assumed but there's potential of trust to the point that as we develop our relationship and I ask 
to do things, whether that's sometimes change the title, sometimes that's kill a character, you know, all the classic uh, enemy things that this author is going to trust me. And in the case of this book, I mean, it is such a delicate book. It holds itself up in so many ways. And I, I knew when I read it that it was not going to be a heavy lift because as you were saying, Miwa, it keeps going. It that doesn't stop. And a book this sensitive and kind of original and a place of storytelling, it easily could just be very navel-gazy and we never leave the sun. And the way I actually pitched it to my boss, I was like, yes, this is narrated by a mountain lion and there was no punctuation. But you have to understand that within this is actually a very cinematic, familiar, universal story of you know, of age and community and loss and all these things. And so once I feel like I had a grasp on the actual meat of the book, which is those kind of elements I was saying, the, the more universal aspects, I knew that we just had to fit the rest of the book around that. So I, so I really didn't, we only did, I think, one round on this, on this book. Henry's a pro, he's so uh, intentional with his language. And that was the other thing I really wanted to make sure for myself. It was just like, I almost had to put on, you know, gloves before editing this book because as an editor, I'm never trying to turn a book into something that it already isn't, especially fiction. This book in particular, I was like, let me not muck up this <laughs> beautiful canvas. And I, I think, you know, here and there, there was maybe a line or two I felt, you know, whether it was repetitive or we didn't, it felt extra, but I, I actually didn't really cull anything outside of, we added a couple pages before the ending just to kind of give us a breather in a lot of ways and cut some other stuff. I actually understand exactly where you are in the book when you're saying, I know the pages you're talking about. Or the climax. It it, Mm -hmm. kind of slowed down. And I remember one edit that I felt kind of self-conscious about giving to Henry, which is that there's so many of these lines that are one-liners that people could and probably will get tattooed like on their body. I yeah, mean, I I actually think there's going to be a whole run of people the open throat tattoos. I, without a doubt, without a doubt, I I absolutely think that's going to happen. And and it'll be next to another hilarious line of, that observes something about therapists or or sex or you know whatever. But th- there are these lines that kind of knocked me sideways and funny. And I just remember asking Henry like, "Hey, if you could slip in a, a you know a couple other one-liners that kind of encompass the like." the feeling of being a human in the universe and something that we can all relate to that's really instantly memorable, that would be awesome. And I just remember <laughs> thinking to myself, like, you can't, like, force magic to happen like that. But I think Henry took the edit well. And, uh, yeah, I didn't have to do basically anything with this with this book. It came basically perfect, so. Yeah, and Henry, well, you've written yeah. plays, right? So, I mean, I, dialogue yeah, yeah. and movement, like, that is something that's sort of innate to your piece of the craft, right? I know you said you always knew this was going to be a book. You always knew Open Throat was going to be a book, but like there's stuff you know from the other bits of your life as a writer that I think translate here in a way that actually made me trust you even more, I think, because I was like, okay, all right, all right I here we go. And I read Open Throat in a single sitting on a flight. And it was just kind of the perfect reading experience because you're just, you can focus, 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 and the rewards are all there. I'm like, I think I've marked up every single, yeah, actually, I have marked up it. This is my now 
destroyed galley because why not? But please destroy away. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so here's the thing. Writing is an act of communion. Reading is an act of communion. Like putting all of this stuff on the page, you're trusting your editor. Your editor is trusting you. Like there are all of these human moments to making a book. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like all of this stuff that you can't really necessarily control. You kind of hope you get the right team. <laughs> it doesn't always happen. No, and I absolutely, absolutely got the right team. I mean, I think I think what, what was so magical about working with Jackson was as you say, like this book, it, like the propulsive quality of this book and that it that it keeps going and going. And that was really how I wrote it with this fluidity and this momentum, you know, just to keep because I was really was every day I was getting up, I mean, you know, every like weekday or whatever, I would get up and write for three hours. And, you know, very slowly in a way, but but really getting the pages and getting the moments and, and the and the the lines, because I, I always wanted to end I ended every writing session with something I was like, like, yeah, like that I get to sort of like, yeah, okay, you know, that cooked, you know, like that, that's, that's done. I hit that beat that makes me feel satisfied and ready for the next day. But then I would leave it on all these cliffhangers. But what Jackson really helped me do um, in editing and, you know, really, as he says, like delicate notes, um, thoughtful, like aware of like my syntax and like what meant a lot to me in a story, but was let me take a breath, build more space around it, step away for a moment, step outside of, you know, not outside of the voice, but outside of this the very visceral moments that the cat is experiencing. And that was amazing. And it helped a lot with, uh, especially, um, I can't wait, I'm going to read the scene this week at the Center for Fiction, but um, <laughs> where we were shuffling like a little bit of, you know, reverie and flashback into the current moment and how those moments would work. We, we did a lot of work with those for pacing. And I think that was all stuff that, I, you know, I couldn't see in the, in the full, you know, ongoing flow, but that was just beautiful to, to work on in the drafting for the, for publication. Yeah. I worked in film. I wrote films. I made films. I, I, I've written theater because I really am a book writer now. Like that's just what I want to do. And you know, we'll see. We'll see what I need to do for you know financial needs, but um, and what opportunities come, which is all exciting. But I think that um, but I really love to write books because I can bring all these other elements of what I've done in the past into this. And I don't. I'm not. I'm not writing plays or movies like, and I haven't for a very long time. I've just focused on books. And so, especially with the dialogue, I really loved like giving those. That just like completely um, idiosyncratic Los Angeles like characters and voices, just giving them these like rich moments, and that's all you get. You know, you get them hiking by once, and I was like, yeah, there's a whole there's a whole play in just these two characters that I show for two pages. Like, I wanted to have that fullness with what Heckett's encountering, so that like the cat has a lot to to chew on from humans. It's like, well, wow, there's like a lot going on in that relationship that that Heckett's just witnessed, but we don't get to see it. All we get is speculation, but we get that concentrated dialogue. I always wanted that, that really overheard strangeness that you would get in a play um, where you just dropped in and you keep living with those characters. But I would shortcut them just so we te- I tease everything, right? Yeah, that was sort of my, my crafting there. It's really intimate what you do. And it's intimate in a way that if your characters knew how they were being eavesdropped upon, I think they would be mortified. But of course, for us, it's very much fun. <laughs> great it is so great but i want to talk about influences for a second because both of you are coming into books you know it's much easier right to find queer writers it's much easier to be part of a queer community mm-hmm. it is much easier you know when i was first coming up through booking we had sort of the same things you always had kind of thing right like it was a very small set 
uh, writers and books and whatnot. And it's just, it's so exciting to see like this entire new generation flourishing and being like, well, I can pull from whatever I feel like pulling. Maybe it's sci-fi, maybe it's, you know, romance, whatever. I don't care. Just write all of the things. But I do want to talk about some of your literary influences, both Jackson as an editor and a reader and Henry both as a writer and a reader, because they're not always the same, right? Like they're not always, you look to different writers for different things. And maybe they're not all queer, but you guys are part of this up and coming new generation. I sort of want to put some guardrails out there for folks who maybe aren't immediately part of this conversation. Who's going to start? Jackson, you start. Okay. You know, taste is such an intangible, weird thing. It's something I've, I'm always growing and learning. And um, my taste changes as a reader and as an editor constantly. You know, when I came out of college as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed English major, I was like, I just got to, like, be amongst words all the time. And then you realize, you know, you have to learn how to bring those words to people and hopefully get people paid for those words. And all that to say is, you know, th- threading the needle between the market and what readers are looking for versus elevating the voices that you think deserve to be out there and then finding uh, the audiences for those new types of voices. It's it's what makes my job so engaging and challenging and fun. And in terms of, you know, queer literature, it's, it's a huge part of my list. It's a huge part of my life. As an editor, the books that you know, if, if I have to describe my my authors in one word, I, I really like to say uncompromising. And specifically with my queer writers, you, know, you look at somebody like Brontes, I'm super close to, and we did 100 Boyfriends. And that book is uncompromising in its depiction of Black gay life in Oakland. And it's funny, and it's raunchy, and it's sexy, and it is so complex. And I, I can also look at uh, Sarah Shulman's History of Act Up, which I published. And she was like, this book needs to be 750 pages. I said, okay, it does. <laughs> because that's the story that hadn't been told before. And so I think that is what really excites me about Henry's book, which is, as I said, it's it was never going to be anything that uh, it wasn't already. And so you look at some of the writers I admire, like Andrea Lawler, for example, or you know, and Alex Chi. And these are the queer writers I look up to whose taste, again, is is... You can't influence it. It is always going to be unapologetically what it is. And especially for a generation above me of queer writers, like you were saying, Miwa, there weren't many. And a lot of the reason also for cis gay male writers is many of them got sick and died. And so in a way, we're actually getting to repopulate the canon with these newer uncompromised voices. And it's just awesome. And I, a book that Andrea and I read, which I gave to everybody, called Such Times by Christopher Coe, C-O-E. And Andrea and I have kind of been reading these out of uh, out of print queer books together because I reissued to her, excuse me, uh, Image and Benny's Nevada, which in my opinion is the most uncompromising uh, queer novel. This book by Christopher Coe, it, it it broke my heart because it it had blurbs, it had reviews, it was the prose was out of this world, and it was wiped off the face of the earth because a year after it came out, he died of AIDS, and it was just gone, and so. All this to say is that queer writers have been doing this, and now we're in a position where, in theory, you know, it's a slightly better world in some ways, and just in the sense that I also feel like straight readers or non-queer readers are way more open to reading other experiences. And that, to me, makes me really happy that my queer books, first and foremost, I want those readers to, to be seen, but it's so cool to me when a book like Detransition Baby, which I love, is such an amazing book, 
is being read in a book group of, you know, straight cis moms. Like that is like, that is awesome. So to have that crossover while still keeping it 100% gay as hell, that is, I feel like the dream and the promise of like what decades of queer literature has like been bringing us to. Okay. I need someone to bring back Essex Hempel's poems though. They're out of okay, print. We'll talk about someone, that offline. someone needs to fix that, please. I need, <laughs> I need those back because I very foolishly loaned a copy to someone and it has of can't course never come back no and, can't do that. and and no usually i'm okay about lending stuff it's just that's the one where i'm like really i had to loan that one my original copy of nevada is under lock and key okay you cannot find it for that reason henry yeah no i'm so grateful for for jackson and what jackson does and immediately just when we when we connected you know to talk about this book i was like oh I know Brontes and I, you know, and I know, um, and, and the Schulman book, you know, is incredible work archive, you know, and I think that just, I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is, a, I can see their vision for what they're bringing into the world. It was like, you know, sort of my privilege to be um, connected to Queer Lit was that I went, went to CalArts a little over a decade ago for my MFA. And it was sort of, I ended up there um, and, because my partner um, w- went there for acting and I was like, oh, they have a really interesting creative writing program. It's not like anything that I would think of applying to. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll be a book person because I'm so sick of being a film person. You know, I loved queer cinema and I, you know, like grew up, you know, working at a video store and connecting to to that in my hometown. My mentor was Matthias Wigner, who's an incredible um, mm. writer. And, um, you know, and, and through Matthias, like reading Kathy Acker, who, you know, Matthias um, manages her estate um, and her work. And um, and then Maggie Nelson, um, another professor of mine, and just connecting through them and people they would bring in, meeting Eileen, uh, Eileen Miles, and, you know, someone who I'd heard about since I was listening to Hot Topic by La Tigre, you know, and I was like, you know, and had read so much of, of their poetry, but then just like getting to, to dialogue with them around when they put out Inferno. And then, I mean, Michelle T came through, just an, an incredible amount of um, amazing writers who, you know, I, now I feel like I'm excited to be in community with or just sharing this work with, especially thanks to, you know, Jackson and, and, and others to share my own work with them. Um, it just opened my eyes to more than I think as Jackson is uncompromising and, and the singularity of, um, you know, because I think there's like, I'm a bisexual and I'm genderqueer and I sort of have this, this experience of like, I'm not part of like, I, I was never part of like a monolithic or specific exact scene of writing or of, of narrative, but I, you know, what I love how, how, concentrated queer books are because they're so purposeful and they're depicting things that aren't the norm and they're outside of that to meet these people and to read their work and to have them talk about their work through CalArts and through the and also the just the Los Angeles community um, and so the sort of things the, the the event series I built was just an, a, a wonderful way to um, to see the singularity of all these voices and to see how much they were bringing to the table to to, to dynamize you know can be a very um, I think a very homogenous literary approach. I mean, you know, no matter what, and even across, you know, voices, there's often like a way to write a book or a way to craft fiction that I just never really felt was ever going to be me. I I used to joke I would never write a novel. And in a way, I don't think I really have written like novels. Like, as you say, like, I write these other things that are... Hey, it um, says novel on the cover. Um, Yeah, Henry, Henry. No, it's... I mean, I'd argue novel versus novella, but no, it's... It's the novella, it's, you know, that's you I, know, I, and the whole novella thing. I mean, I love honestly, the word. It's a great word. But also, you know, novels can be lots of different lengths. Mm. Just saying. <laughs> I, I think so. Well, the way the way I think about it is like, as I said, I wanted to like I wanted to give this cat a book like I wanted this cat to be writing a book, you know, not like I am a cat writing a book, <laughs> of course. And that's part of what I navigate is it's never like a cat declaring their place. It's 
it's finding something strange about identity. You know, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> they don't know the expression. They don't even know that they can speak. You know, they can't. But the idea of like, yeah, a novel is like, yeah, this for a big cat, it's a novel. It was a lot to write, <laughs> to express all this. So I kept thinking about that voice and what that brings. I, I was um I was at the dinner with um just uh, uh, some friends and um I was with uh with Richard Hell, the musician and and poet, now poet and, and memoirist. <laughs> and he was like, I love how you kids get away with you know, writing these slim books and, you know, calling them a novel. And I was like, well, Richard, it's your fault. Like, you did you did that to culture. Like, you brought punk into our lives. So, like, we're going to call things novels that people don't think are, you know. Well, and I mean, Kathy Acker is kind of one of the ultimate punk writers, right? Like, Pussy King know. of the Pirates, when I think about it. And, and certainly, mm-hmm. like, all of the early, early stuff, she just burned everything to the ground and was like, hi. I'm going to do my own thing. And I mean, when she was good, she was great. <laughs> and I think that was really, that's, that's my, that's my hope for my, the lineage that I'm carrying is, is just people that were uninterested in trends or even form as a, as a, as a stuck or codified thing that you have to meet, especially in order to be like marketable or whatever. And that's what I'm just so grateful to Jackson um, as a, as a general, you know, editor and acquirer of books. And of course, specifically mine, of course, I'm very grateful, but just what Jackson chooses and elevates is is absolutely not expected and so much of it is people that i i love and think are amazing but maybe haven't gotten the level of of exposure that mcd and fsg can give and 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 i think giving that prestige to these really dynamic or unique voices unexpected voices is just it's a calling and it's something that you you do amazingly jackson so i'm just i'm in awe of that approach fun and i think you know i've probably told you i mean iris silverberg is definitely my blueprint for a lot of this and the books that he was responsible for acker and burroughs and dennis cooper and yeah. the way that but it was a different way you know he groves exceptional house but he was working from the margins in in a lot of ways and working so hard and also some genuinely probably not even caring that much if they made it to the to the middle in some ways but his job as an editor was that he was able to stay uncompromising while still giving these people, you know, attention. And now I feel like that's the spirit I am trying to bring with me is how he used to do that. I'm still, I ask him questions all the time about how the hell he did it. I think sometimes he knows. Sometimes he knows and sometimes it was magic. But if you're going to be uncompromising, you've got to have that voice though. You've got, if, if there is no voice to hang this on, there's no point in being uncompromising. And when you talk about I, the Eileen Miles and the Kathy Ackers and the Dennis Coopers and one, there is a voice there. There is a point of view. There Undeniable is voice. absolutely yeah. like the thing that hooks you in and you're just like, I guess I'm going along. Okay, here I am. And that's, that's the kind of gorgeous beauty of the thing, right? Like literature should challenge us. Stories should challenge us. Like, you know, when we're little kids and we're learning to read and it's like, please read me the same picture book 97 times, preferably in one night, right? Like we've all... Uh, I was that kid saying, hi, can someone please read this? And then once you learn to read, you're like, boom, boom, boom. Or you're rereading stuff. And I don't have the luxury of rereading the way I used to. But at the same time, like there is so much joy, right? When you go back and you find something and you're like, oh, right. I remember how great this was. And then there are other things where you're like, wow, this was of a time and of a place. And I do not need to, wow, I do not need to have this in my life again. And I just love that you can do this and see this, right? Mm. especially with what Henry's doing in Open Throat, like there's a landscape of Los Angeles, right? That shouts out a little bit of Hubert Selby, right? Even though he's not like, I know I'm talking about Brooklyn, but there's a little bit of that lineage there, right? There's a little bit of Fonte, like 
all of these sort of gritty landscape people and you're doing it. But I want to talk about place. I want to talk about place for a second because, yeah, Los Angeles can be unwieldy and it can be unmanageable. And I sent so many copies of this galley to a bunch of booksellers, obviously, at our store at the Grove because I'm just like, it's P22. Like, y'all, here you go. And it's more than P22, but, you know, it's nice to be able to say, you guys, of all the people in the world, like, let's start with you and then we'll, we'll go from there. But L.A. is a metaphor. L.A. is a place. L.A. is the thing, right? Like, you mapped a city and what, what is this, 155 pages? And I don't even know what the word count is because there's lots of white space. So, mm-hmm. 100, excuse me, 156 pages. Yeah, yeah. But how do you map a place, right? How do you sit down and map the emotional terrain mm. of a place? Yeah, I think that um, it really was a, an inside out approach. You know, I, I was, I probably, the most surprising thing about crafting this book was how much I was able to cover um, about how I things I view in Los Angeles. And again, you know, with a, a concentrated quality, right? It's, you know, with, with that finesse and that style of my, my way of writing, where I'm not, you know, I'm not exhaustive. <laughs> I am very much not exhaustive. But in a way, I was like, well, part of it is that even getting these small, ferocious bits of, of the cat's experience, they were real flashpoints for, for connecting with um, things like inequality things like encroaching urbanity on natural spaces, things like apocalyptic interruptions to life from fire to, you know, to earthquake, to flood, the things that, you know, I was experiencing, but imagining other people and especially animals and, you know, and unhoused people experiencing much more acutely. Really, that's sort of the beats of the book was to just to write toward each of these kind of just ruptures in sort of a daily life and in a, in a you know, complacent, confused, overwhelmed human life you know these things don't you know they can just sort of be blips but for the cat it's very each one's monumental and shifting and changes their whole psyche in some moments yeah but you also have a way of writing about money not class i'm not talking about i'm i am talking literally about money where suddenly you can see this entire world unfold right like who has access to what and when and where we are physically in place because it's a hard thing to do right like yes you are covering you know those who have housing and those who do not and but money is different money is different and what there's one line actually where the cat is trying to figure out someone has actually dropped cash on the ground and he's like well i know that's important i know people want that and i should go take it and it doesn't taste like anything like what i it's just it's what four lines five yeah i don't know pretty much yeah it happens in, I don't know, 30 seconds, depending on how fast you read. And it's, it stuff like that pops up. And there's, there's a sort of youngish girl, um, you know, late teens, early twenties who um, pops into the story later. And she's, she's a big part of that whole money piece and the way you write about money and the access to that and whatnot. You really did need to step outside of humanity in order to be able to tell the story about us, right? Like it just was not going to happen another way. Like when I think of how you write about money and access and power and family and love and all of that, you just, you weren't going to be able to do it unless you did this is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I mean, I think place is incredibly important to me in my books. Like my my memoir is, you know, about my hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia, and all the complexities of like 
racial violence and the history of it and also just like what it is to to grow up um, and be connected to a hometown. In that book, I do it through 20 stickers, you know, <laughs> like that's it. I think finding an absurd core, a, a kernel of the absurd in order to reflect, absurd being like, how do you sum up a book in I mean, a, a town in 20 stickers? How do you sum up a childhood in 20 stickers? And then in this, it's like, yeah, like ordering the world through human language and through a lot of like human, both foibles and disasters, you know, that's the way to, to see it for me. I was like, yeah, like that's, that's the way in to be without. Yeah. Making sense of money by saying like, well, I've seen people drop it and get upset that they dropped it, you know? And like, so it has value. Right. And like, I know that, so, you know, bringing it to the encampment of unhoused people, like, cause like they'll, they'll, they'll do something with this because it doesn't taste like it's in my mouth and it, I, I can't taste it. I can't eat it. This is nothing because this cat is learning about a human world. It can be reflected as absurd. Later on, I'll just tease that there's a potential, like a domestication situation. <laughs> and, and, and that does, it shows the absurdity of space and of housing and, you know, like, and of the, the greenery even of Los Angeles. For this wild animal, it's like, this isn't natural. Like, this doesn't make sense, you know? And I think that I've, you know, I've certainly felt that all the time. You know, you feel the dryness, you feel the scarcity, which is, you know, two words as my cat hears it. It's scarcity is the place, yeah. honestly, more than which it is like LA. That, that device works. Yeah, that device yeah. really works. Yeah, it just, that meant something to me because I was like, yeah, it's 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 a place that's defined by um, by lack and by a massive inequality of resources, you know, like, and, and I think, you know, living in my small apartment and, you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a quite privileged person, especially like in the scale of Los Angeles. And, you know, I'm, I'm living there, but I'm not from there, but, but I'm living in the small apartment and I'm driving to like my therapist and I'm driving through like Beverly Hills, you know, and I'm just like, this is bizarre. Like for anyone, especially someone like me to still feel like they're these astronomical verticalities of, of wealth and then of what the, your world is because of your wealth. I was like, well, this cat is going to be, you know, coming from a cave, you know, with very little to eat, eating bats, and then is going to be in, as, as P22 was, like living under a house in Los Feliz, like a, an incredibly, you know, high income area, like right by Griffith Park, those those houses. And and so I was like, well, this is a this is a way to to map this place and to map the strange way I, I encountered it. Yeah. Jackson, you grew up in L.A. I know you recognized this L.A. the minute you read this book, because, I mean, you and I have sort of talked about this offline, but you're displaced, Angelino. You left. You're here in New York. You miss it? Man, yeah, I miss it. I, I'm a third generation Angelino. All of my family is there, like every person. So it's quite controversial that I'm not there uh, amongst my family. I do miss it, but I, I really think about less than zero a lot. The bread is... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which uh, has uh, some of the types of vibes I grew up in. And, you know, he has that whole spiel about... It's, it's almost like the echoing Didion a little bit about the, like, there is no center <laughs> to LA. Like, you drive around and around in circles. And so more so than a place like New York that I'm, maybe it's... Maybe it embraces you. Maybe it kind of slaps you around, but you're in it. And LA, you you can visit and not know where the hell you are the whole time. And so all that to say is I, I feel like at this stage in my creative and personal life, this is where I need to be. But of course I miss that. I really miss also the connection to nature. And that's and that's something I love how you explore that in the book, Henry, too. But we just, it's it's a different thing. Even on the beach with a million people, you still feel like, you're part of something slightly wild and it's hard to get that feeling for me here as much. Even when I see like a rat 
run across my shoe. You know, it doesn't feel as as wild as as Big Sur or something like that. Yeah, but that, and I know you just mentioned Big Sur, but that wildness to me, that, you know, that's, San Diego is not wild. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's right. the Santa Monica Mountains and and sort of that, that in-between coast, right, before you get up to Ventura. Ventura is yes. still pretty wild too. But yes. I have a center to my LA, but it's been very mm-hmm. deliberate. Right. Like I have have built a thing and like my LA is not the West side. Right. It's just my LA is, is what it is. And I love it. And it is a huge part of how I see the world, but you have to, you have to build the thing. Right. Yeah. And so our line is looking for that center and that's why it's a fun device to use this line to understand because, you know, it's, it's, it's a case of wherever uh, he goes there, he is, you know, and it's, it's, it's it's hard to actually have a statement about anything in the city except that there's nothing to say at all. So um, I thought it in that way it captures captures the LA I know, and it made me a little wistful. But my mom has tried and failed enough to guilt me uh, to come back, and now I think she's given up. But wait, have either of you ever done the hike up behind the Hollywood sign? You know, when you dip around the reservoir and and head up through the back, and then you sort of end up on the on the back side of the sign. Have you ever done? I that? have never. Okay, done. Jackson, you need to do it. You need because it's also it's a little vigorous, and if you're doing it like in the middle of the day, it's, <laughs> you earn your workout. But I don't think I'm ever going to be able to stop thinking about open throat every time I do that. Right? Here I am, like you know, it's never mind the rattlesnakes, out. never mind the, the other mountain lions. It's just like, oh great, now I'm walking around thinking about my mountain lion having an existential crisis because, you know, that's what our art is supposed to do, right? Like our art is supposed to make us think about the choices we make and, and mm. how we approach the world. And uh, Henry, you really made me care so much about this mountain lion because again, I got mm. attached to the voice. And I think that voice is just, I actually don't want to know how you did it. I just want to sit with it because it's so good. <laughs> I don't want it's to pick so, it apart. I don't no, want to I pick mean, it apart. I just want it to be. I just want but our, I can our say friends' it is. life. Yeah, it just, it really was. It was just, I mean, it's my voice. It's, it, it is my voice. Like, that's what's so interesting about it. And talking about, like, finding, it, like, the center. And, like, and I was like, yeah, like, I I inhabited a similar space to P22. Like, I just would walk out of my house and sort of, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I have sort of a, a disability. So I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't hike vigorously, but I, but I push myself to reach a, a spot in the Franklin Hills or to get up into Los Feliz. I can be at the observatory in you know, about 40 minutes from my door, walk straight and just walking up the, through the hills and on the staircases. And this was like my experience of wildness. And, and during that time, it was pretty much the same era that P-22 had crossed the 405 and was there. And I always was like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not alone. There's this like big cat spirit here around me and potentially lurking and even on my visit to los angeles last year to launch the memoir i was um i heard that the cat had been spotted in silver lake where i was staying like so it was just a very i was like okay this is the time that i'll encounter it but really my it really was just my ordering of space and my voice all i did was just like channel my old you know vicious house cat from when growing up and was like okay what did she eat you know she liked bats um she was bloodthirsty in this case Mm -hmm. that's next lots of bat snacks and that that was uh one of jackson's like hard check marks in the edit was like bat snack yes i give a lot of affirmation in my editing okay. it's a beautiful it's... thing to do I, yeah it was very special to have like yes like, or like yum <laughs> yeah well i'm also just glad you weren't kiki 
And you two know what I'm talking about when I say I'm glad you weren't Kiki and other people can find out. Oh, poor Kiki. Yeah, yeah. And that happened for real. That was another another real plot point. Yeah. So so when you when you see it, you'll just know that that was a that was an occurrence that I read about and you know felt very conflicted about. That was tough. Hey, so what's next for the two of you? Are we gonna see another Henry Hope, Jackson Howard production? I'm waiting. I don't know what's coming next. You gotta ask the Mm -hmm. writer. Yeah. Well, I'm asking um, both of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm working on something. It's very, I'm very excited about it. I think, you know, it was a little bit, again, I, I wrote my memoir under contract after I'd finished Open Throat. So it was sort of, I had that wild journey um, of completely changing uh, tack. That was a very hard book to write. I, I still had a lot of fun with it and it's very concentrated and, you know, succinct, but, but it was a tough book to write with all the, all the research and engagement with, you know, wild political times during the pandemic. I wrote it over the pandemic, essentially, right after I'd finished Open Throat. So I, 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 it took me a little while to get back into into a new voice. And I've found it. Like, I found the voice. I have the story and I'm, I'm building it. it. I'm writing a Southern Gothic book. So it's exciting. Um, yes. So because it's just time. I need to write my it's Southern time. Gothic expression. Yeah, Mr. Hoke, it is time. It is it is absolutely mm-hmm. time for you. Because I'm, I'm very Southern, you know, um, by, by my background and my upbringing, even deeper Southern than, than Virginia. Um, but it's, so it's an Alabama novel and it's going to be fun. Um, yeah, I know that Brontes is also doing an Alabama novel. So I'm very excited about that as well. Um, yeah, so, so I'm excited about that work. And I absolutely, of course, want to share it with Jackson. I think that, you know, how could I not? <laughs> you actually have to so but coming soon <laughs> I, you know. I will be reading it yes uh, you know couple, give me five months and you know, <laughs> let me let me let me come down from all this summer touring and i'm ready to get back into yeah a voice and i think i found a really a really exciting voice to write in um it's also a bit natural so that's fun um it's, uh, that's just a teaser okay okay we can be patient that's okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we can just you know we can reread open throat it's 150 oh, it's very, very fast very yes, very yes. fast it'll hold you over yeah 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 all right henry hope jackson howard thank you so much for joining us on port over open thank throat you. is out now and yeah you can just read it and reread it and keep going back thanks guys thanks thank you so much for thank you for listening port over is a barnes and noble production To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.